Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear as we read this today, as we dive into your word. Help us to understand, help us to repent as appropriate of our sin, that we might become like Christ. I pray that we would be a, a holy people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A writer for the Smithsonian um, magazine, he described the culture of ancient Corinth like this, quote, Nothing gets a classical scholar's heart pumping like the sacred prostitutes of Corinth. The Greek port that is depicted as the free-living Amsterdam of the ancient world. He goes on and says, After landing at the Corinthian docks, sailors would apparently wheeze up the thousand-odd steps to the top of a stunning crag of rock called the Acrocorinth which offered 360-degree vistas of the sparkling Mediterranean. There they would pass beneath the marble columns of the temple of Aphrodite, goddess of beauty and love, within whose incense-filled candlelit confines 1,000 beautiful girls supposedly worked around the clock gathering funds for their deity. Since the Renaissance, this idea had gripped antiquarians who liked to imagine that Congress with one of Aphrodite's servants offered a mystical union with the goddess herself, uninhibited pagans coupling in ecstasy before her statue in the perpetual twilight of the temple. Corinth was a city that was given over to the worship of sex. A thousand priestesses from that temple of Aphrodite that stood on that rocky hill behind the ancient city would come down into the streets at night to ply their trade. Promiscuity, obviously, was accepted and even highly regarded in that culture. And it pretty much is the same for us today across these United States. And so when the Apostle Paul had come into the city and had begun to preach and teach about Jesus Christ and had planted a church there. He, he taught these new believers what they ought to know about life and truth and reality. And as a result of his teaching, the Christian church at Corinth began to challenge 
head on the, the moral looseness of the city. Paul had taught that the immorality that was just rampant in the city was wrong. That there were, but there were some in the church who apparently took issue with some of Paul's teaching on this. It's possible, and some scholars believe, that there were some in the church who said that, that the Apostle Paul himself had taught doctrine that laid the groundwork for viewing some of the immoral practices of Corinth as being right and proper for Christians. And therefore, they wanted to participate in them. They wanted to redeem the culture. Here at this church, Logansville Church, we believe that there is nothing more relevant Nothing more pertinent, more applicable to the issues that people face today at the tail end of 2021 than the Word of God. And we can see these same issues facing, that face the church at Corinth, they're still facing us today. In Christian churches today, there are many voices being raised that say that we need to soften our view towards sexual immorality and certain sexual practices and, and allow them even to be accepted as good and right and, and sometimes even celebrated in our churches. This is exactly the problem that Paul was faith, facing at the city of Corinth, the church there at, at Corinth. So these verses at the end of chapter 6... They serve as a transition from the the things that Paul has heard uh, about them, about the church, probably from Chloe's people, uh, transitions to his response um, to a letter that they had written to him directly. You can see in chapter 7, verse 1, he actually makes that transition. They have certain questions that they would like Paul's clarification on. But before he can address those things, he needs to point out some larger root issues that lay under the problems and the disagreements that they were struggling with as a church. See, they've asked him about the Christian view of marriage relations because it's so completely different from anything that they had ever seen before. The Christian view of marriage, he's going to get into this in chapter 7, but it's so completely different from the Corinthian view of marriage. But before he can answer that question, he needs to instruct them to flee the immorality that is all around them. And I want to be clear at the outset here, that when Paul says flee immorality in verse 18, He's not telling them to pick up the church and and move out into the wilderness and live a separatist existence. In fact, he's already said back in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. When Paul tells us to flee immorality, he's talking to individuals. And the image for us is to be, to be as Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to ensnare him. Genesis chapter 39, just listen to verses 11 and 12. But one day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
Yes, immorality is all around us. We see this, we understand this. We cannot and are not called to remove ourselves from this world. But there are traps that we should run from. And like the ancient city of Corinth, these traps seem to be everywhere, don't they? Well, as I said, this passage, verses 12 to 20, it marks a transition. Um, Again, you can see for yourself at the first verse of chapter 7 that he's going to respond to some of their questions. But up through these verses, all the way through chapter 6, through the end of chapter 6, Paul is responding to reports that he's heard. He's heard reports of factions and divisions in the church. He's heard reports of immorality in the church of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. And then they're also suing each other to settle their disputes. And then in these verses, Paul is addressing an attitude toward a socially acceptable and yet immoral practice. And the difference between these verses and the previous couple of sections, verses five, or chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6, is that, is that here in these verses, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't single out a, a particular person or group of people as he rebukes. In chapter 5, he rebukes the church, but he, he singled out a specific man involved in immorality. In chapter 6, from the early verses, it's pretty clear that there's somebody that he's thinking of that's suing another person in the church. Here, it's more broad. He's simply addressing the issue, and then he tells them, each of them, in verse 18, to flee from sexual immorality. I want to point out right here, before we even get to verse 18, that there is one word that is um, it's translated here in the ESV and also in most other, many other translations as sexual immorality, flee sexual immorality. The King James pulls no punches and just simply says flee fornication. This is the Greek word porneia. That word for sexual immorality or fornication is porneia. Flee porneia. And I'm pointing that out for obvious reasons for those of us here who understand English. Flee porneia. Now, as I said, this is a widespread issue in Corinth, just as it is here in America. And there's another connection I think that we should make here. See, just like the the lawsuits of the previous passage, and also the acceptance within the church of the immorality of chapter 5, Paul is explaining here again that sin cannot be tolerated within the Christian community, within the church. That such toleration and even participation in these infectious sins is utterly incompatible with the status of God's people as saints. Do you really understand this? Saints, Christians, are called to act like Christ. We are to put on Christ. We are to put on His holiness. We are no longer slaves to sin. No longer are we identified as sinners, but as saints. That doesn't mean we no longer sin. Most of us in this room would admit that we do continue to sin. 
John speaks very clearly about this in his first epistle. If we say we have no sin, we're lying, so therefore sinning. It means that we no longer find our identity in our sin, but rather in Christ. It means that we are, we are constantly putting the deeds of the flesh off, destroying it, killing the sin, and we are putting on Christ-likeness. It means that we are living lives of regular, daily repentance and transformation. But I also want to make a connection here, just very briefly, because this is going to come up later in the letter, and also helps, I think, to, uh, helps us to understand why the Bible speaks so clearly and so often about this topic. And that is this. This isn't just simply about moral failure. This is about idolatry. This is not just simply about immorality. This is about idolatry. Scripture often, both Old and New Testament, connects uh, immorality with idolatry. Consider, just for one example, there's a whole bunch, but just one, and it's probably the most... um, Explicit, that might not be the right word. The prophet Hosea. Just listen to a couple of verses from Hosea. This is chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. The Lord is speaking here, and he says this, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin." It would have been wise for the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, to take heed to those verses. It would be good for us to take heed, to pay attention to those verses as well. But back to our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As Paul introduces this next rebuke, this next correction for the church, he makes two assertions. And the first is there in verse 12. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is asserting here that Christian freedom has boundaries. Christian freedom has boundaries. When we think of holiness, we usually don't think of freedom, do we? We usually think of restrictions. Don't do this, don't do that. That's usually what we think of. We tend to think of of a list of things that we can no longer do. But do we understand the connection between personal holiness, personal holiness, and community or church-wide holiness? See, we really need to connect our holiness with the building up or the benefiting of the entire church body. So consider this phrase. Now, it may have been a, um, a, some sort of Corinthian slogan, or maybe not. Many of the new um, versions put this in quotes when Paul says, all things are lawful for me. 
It's possible that he's taking something that they've said and, and he's answering that. Um, commentaries actually disagree about that. But regardless, consider that phrase, all things are lawful for me. Over the past couple of years here, uh, I have consistently tried to pound into our heads, my own included, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, if Romans 8.1 is true, then this phrase here seems right. It even seems liberating. In other words, there's nothing that you can do that would cause you to lose your salvation. That is true. But not all things are helpful, Paul responds. In fact, some things may end up dominating or enslaving us even though we are Christians. This is especially true these days in the days of secret sexual sins. I'm guessing that there are people in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. To have the attitude of all things are lawful for me is to allow enslaving sins to get a foothold in your life. And once they have a foothold in your life, if left unchecked, they will spread. They will spread to your family. They will spread to the whole church. And if you don't believe that, then how do we get to the point where churches are hanging pride flags out front? Or how do we get to the point where the rate of divorce among self-professed evangelical Christians apparently, according to studies, is almost the same as it is with the rest of the world? All things may be lawful in the sense that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but you know as well as I do that there are some things that are dominating for you even, even today. Paul is asserting that Christian freedom has boundaries which are given for our protection. But he makes a second assertion in verses 13 and 14. Again, this is uh, the first statement here is in quotes in many of the new versions. And so he's probably responding to a, a, a statement or a slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. As Christians, this is his second assertion, as Christians, our bodies are dedicated to the Lord. So as I said, that first statement, uh, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, that's probably a saying of the Corinthians, of the people of the city of Corinth. It's probably also a euphemism. I'm going to let you figure it out. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The implication here is that, that people generally believe, or maybe even we should say especially today, that humans have certain appetites that must be satisfied. He's not talking about food. So what does it matter since ultimately we will be ashes to ashes and dust to dust? 
We have appetites. What does it matter? Since we're all going to die eventually anyway. Well, it matters because like it or not, our physical bodies are a part of us. The the Gnostic heresy taught that the physical was evil and would be destroyed, while the spiritual was what really mattered. But Scripture teaches us that there are, we, we are designed and as Christians destined for resurrection. Paul will explain this more in detail when we get up into chapter 15. We're, we're not just simply going to be disembodied spirits for eternity. We're going to be resurrected as Christ is. The Bible here is asserting that Christians have a different view of the body. There's a great spot right here. This is a great spot to read um, Heidelberg Catechism question number one. This was copied by the Orthodox Catechism, which is a Baptist catechism. Um, What is my only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now it goes on from there. The catechism answer is actually longer than that. But consider the importance of that statement. The Christian's only comfort in life and death is that he is with body and soul, both in life and in death, not his own, but belongs to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen. Christian, you have been set apart to holiness. And verse 14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies and what we do with them is set apart under Christ's lordship. And just as he was raised imperishable, so we also will be resurrected. Our bodies matter. And what we do with them indicates whether or not we take seriously the lordship of Jesus Christ in all matters of our lives, including our physical actions, which is why we must not tolerate sin. Well, after making these assertions, he just says these things. After making these assertions here in verses 13 and 14, or 12 to 14, really, Paul then lays out three arguments that support them, that support his assertions. And each of them begins with the same question Do you not know? Or do you not know? Verse 15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So Paul's first argument is that as Christians, we are members of Christ. We are members of Christ. Paul assumes that the Corinthians should understand that the power of Christ's resurrection is active now in their lives because they have been made members of the living Christ. The power of his resurrection is active in our lives now because we have been made members of the living, the resurrected Christ. And so as he makes his case here against this sexual immorality, he has said that first, the body is for the Lord, but now also that each of us is a member of Christ, members of his body. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ, who lives in us, has authority over how his members are to be used. In other words, the life that we are to live as Christians... It's not just the life to which Christ points, but it's the life of Christ himself. So think of it this way. We are not just simply following the Old Testament law. We are to live as Jesus lived in holiness and purity. This brings us really to the next rhetorical question. He says this, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? We could ask it like this. If you are Christ's, how can you use Christ's body to engage with a prostitute? Using a prostitute physically unites that man to her. But you're already spiritually united to Christ. So the question is, Why does Paul bring this up here? And specifically, prostitution. There are, I think, a couple of answers. One is that visiting prostitutes was culturally acceptable in Corinth and Greece and even encouraged. So I talked about that at the beginning. But the other is that it's likely that there were those in the church who were continuing to visit the pagan temple prostitutes and probably encouraging others to do so as well. In our society, we could put pornography in this category. And the connection is no less real, even if it involves only the eyes. Remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The implication here is very clear. The implication here in in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians is pretty clear. You are members of Christ. Live like it. Look at verse 16. His second question, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is Paul's second argument. As Christians, not only are we members of Christ from verse 15, we are also here in these verses, we are in union with Christ. Union with Christ. And Paul is now connecting this immorality to the language of marriage as he refers to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, Genesis 2, 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Sexual union creates an enduring bond. And in cases like this, it's, it's more entangling than simply a momentary physical act. 
It's the application of the one flesh union created by marriage. It's applying that union to what some might call a casual encounter, when in reality, there is no such thing. This has enduring consequences for us, not only physically, but also mentally and especially spiritually. Now, let me just stop right here. And I want to remind you that immorality, fornication, adultery, lust, is not an unforgivable sin. I'm going to say it again because some of you need to hear it. Immorality, whatever, whatever that category, fornication, adultery, lust, it's not an unforgivable sin. It does not make you worthless in the eyes of God. In fact, it was of a prostitute that Jesus said at the end of Luke chapter 7. He said, therefore, I would encourage you to go read the end of Luke chapter 7 this afternoon. But he says this of a prostitute. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Immorality is not an unforgivable sin. But the point of this passage, and I want to keep us focused on what 1 Corinthians is saying here, The point of this passage is to correct those of us who are Christians and yet thinking and maybe even acting like the world. Remember, as a Christian, you are united to Christ, yet a a prostitute here represents idolatry. It represents forces opposed to God. And in engaging in this act, the Christian aligns himself against God. For Paul... For the Apostle Paul, this is far more serious than any of the possible, possible like physical ramifications or even the, the mental repercussions. And I should also point out that his primary concern here isn't in addressing the topic of, of human trafficking either. He's not addressing that at all. Paul's primary concern is how this sexual immorality violates a believer's union with Christ. To be in union with Christ is to be completely dedicated and set apart to Him. It is to obey His call to holiness and purity in our bodies as well as our minds that we might reflect His love, His faithfulness, His purity, His righteousness. So it makes sense that Paul would tell us to flee porneia. The only way to deal with immorality is to run in the other direction as if you were running from an enemy. Who was seeking to kill you. Because you are. You're running from destruction. Now, the rest of verse 18 kind of leaves theologians scratching their heads. Let me read this again. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And then he says this, every... Other sin or every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
you can see why that would be kind of head-scratching because you can think of other types of sins that are physical as well. Um, But I think what Paul is saying is that sexual sin has deep consequences, maybe even deeper than other sins. It does damage that other sins don't really do, not only to our own bodies, but to our families, to our loved ones, etc., etc. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he explains this verse like this, and he uses some strong language. He says, he sins against his own body. He defiles it. He degrades it, making it one with the body of that vile creature with whom he sins. He casts vile reproach on what his Redeemer has dignified to the last degree by taking it into union with himself. We could just say this, we are already totally depraved. We don't need to deprave ourselves even more. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been purchased by Christ. Verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We've been purchased by Christ. What Paul has already applied to the church as a whole, he has already told them earlier in this letter that the assembly of the saints is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He now is applying that to individual Christians. The Holy Spirit stamps our bodies as belonging to God and set apart for His use, set aside for, the, for service to His kingdom. But he also sets us aside as a sacred place of his indwelling presence. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To sin against our bodies in this way is to sin against the one who keeps us and seals us. And so we run from this sin. We flee from this sin. The sin that is so destructive. And we do so because we've been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Christ. And let me just close with this. Deliverance and victory over this sin is possible. I want you to hear that. Deliverance and victory over this sin is possible through the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, it's verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, covers, purifies, forgives, redeems, and is, and is eager to help you kill this sin. He's given you everything that you need through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the church to kill the sin that so easily entangles. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you as um, I'm sure there are people in this room that have not struggled with this sin. But I'm also sure that there are many here who have. And so, Lord, I pray that if we've not struggled with this, that we would pray for those that have. That we would watch our hearts against pride that we would not say, Lord, I am so glad that I'm not like that person. But that in humility, we would, each of us, whether we've struggled with this or not, we would come to you and ask that you would make us clean again. Whatever the sin is that so easily entangles each of us, Lord, that we could flee from sin. But Father, I pray that we would flee Pornea, that we would run from the sins of this world, the spirit of the age, the sin that is just everywhere around us, Lord. That we would run from those things and run to Christ. And so Lord, as we come to the table this morning, knowing that the only way that we can have victory over this sin or sin at all is through the blood of Christ who gave himself as a ransom for our sin. Lord, as we eat and drink and proclaim the death of Christ, remind us that you are working in our hearts and our minds. Remind us that in, it, it really is true that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't presume to come to your table, Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. We're not worthy to gather up crumbs from the table, but you are merciful and gracious. And so as we come, Lord, and feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, remind us that we are united to him and he to us. And that with you and the Holy Spirit are worthy of eternal thanks and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.